The Taj Mahal, widely considered one of the most magnificent buildings ever constructed. A member of the new Seven Wonders of the World, commissioned in 1632, but not completed until 1653. Iconic. Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan dedicated the Taj Mahal to his beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal, who died giving birth to their 14th child. Over 20,000 workers labored alongside 1,000 elephants to erect the great Mughal Mausoleum. It's constructed from white marble, and its interior is inlaid with gemstones such as lapis lazuli and carnelian. Some say it's valued today at over $1 billion. But to others, the view of the Grand Taj Mahal is priceless. But many people don't know that Shah Jahan commissioned another treasure, one twice as expensive and twice as grand. Jahan oversaw the construction of the costliest single piece of treasure built in the past millennium, the Peacock Throne. It was originally housed in the Red Fort, a royal fortress palace in Delhi. According to author K.R.N. Swami, the Peacock Throne was valued at $804 million, or 4.5 billion rupees, in 1999, wrought out of over 2,500 pounds of gold and over 500 pounds of precious stones. It easily cost twice as much as the Taj Mahal to build. Yet for almost 300 years, no one has seen the original Peacock Throne. Since 1739, the costliest single piece of treasure crafted in the last millennium has been gone. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, the show where we search for everything missing. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find previous episodes as well as ParCast's other podcasts on your favorite podcast directory. Some of you have been asking how you can support Gone. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review online. This episode... We're looking into the extravagant Peacock Throne, the seat of the Mughal Empire, a Muslim dynasty which ruled most of northern India from 1526 to the mid-19th century. Somehow, the Peacock Throne has been missing since 1739. The Peacock Throne was last seen in its entirety during the Persian sacking of Delhi, led by the Iranian conqueror Nadir Shah. As a token of war, Nadir Shah supposedly took the throne back to his palace in Iran. There are three main theories as to where the peacock throne may have ended up. The first and simplest theory is that the peacock throne was taken as a war prize after Nadir Shah's failed campaign against the Afghans and Kurds in 1747. The throne was then apparently broken down, dismantled, and distributed amongst the soldiers, who then sold their shares for pennies on the dollar. The second theory is that the Afghans and Kurds didn't plunder the original peacock throne, but merely a recreation of the peacock throne created by Nadir Shah. 
This theory posits that the original peacock throne remained back at Nadir Shah's palace in Iran during his failed campaign against the Afghans and Kurds in 1747. This theory also suggests that after Nadir Shah's death, the original peacock throne was reclaimed by the Mughal Empire and returned to Delhi. The third theory suggests that the peacock throne was aboard the Grosvenor, an 800-ton British ship that wrecked off the South African coast in 1782, and that the peacock throne is to this day acting as a habitation for aquatic life somewhere deep in the Indian Ocean. To begin our investigation, we must first look at the Mughal Empire's Golden Age, a period of great prosperity for the Muslim dynasty in northern India. The Golden Age lasted from 1628 to 1658, which were the years of Emperor Shah Jahan's reign. Shah Jahan, which translates to King of the World, was the third son of Emperor Jahangir and the Rajput princess Manmati. Jahan became a member of the influential Nur Jahan clique, an exclusive group of people centered around Nur Jahan, Jahangir's 20th and final wife. Even before Jahangir's death in 1627, a war of succession was raging between his sons. Jahangir's first son and Shah Jahan's elder brother, Khusru, was killed in a 1622 uprising in Deccan. Some speculate that Shah Jahan had ordered his brother to be killed to increase his own chances of ascending to the throne. Jahangir's second son, Parviz, was considered weak and was rumored to be addicted to alcohol. He died in 1626, some immediately suspecting the death was caused by poison at the hand of Shah Jahan. When Jahangir died the following year, Shah Jahan and his younger brother, Shariar, were the only remaining heirs. Although Shah Jahan was a member of Nur Jahan's exclusive circle, she sided with Shariar in the bid for succession. She feared that if the strong-willed Shah Jahan were made emperor, she would lose her royal influence. She believed Shariar would be easier to manipulate. But Nur Jahan's brother, Asaf Khan, was jealous of his sister's power. He also happened to be Shah Jahan's father-in-law. Unsurprisingly, he sided with Shah Jahan. At this point, the battle for succession turned into a literal war. Shariar raised an army, and Asaf Khan and Shah Jahan met them near the Mughal city of Lahore. Shah Jahan and Khan proved victorious, defeating Shariar's forces. Shah Jahan ordered Shariar to be blinded, then executed along with any remaining contenders for the Mughal Empire's throne. He also ordered Nur Jahan to be confined in a Lahore mansion, where she remained until her death two decades later. In 1628, with no other contenders for the throne and the war of succession officially over, Shah Jahan officially proclaimed himself the next Mughal emperor. Jahan had an unquenchable thirst for building. In the early years of his 30-year reign, Jahan oversaw the construction of two great mosques, the Moti Majid, or the Pearl Mosque, and the Jami Majid, or the Great Mosque. After he shifted his capital from Agra to Delhi in 1639, Shah Jahan ordered the construction of a huge fortress palace known as the Red Fort, which took nine years to complete. His royal court was full of splendor and great pomp, his collection of jewels arguably the most magnificent in the world. 
And of course, by 1653, he had the splendid Taj Mahal erected in Agra for the favorite of his three queens. But Shah Jahan wasn't satisfied with these earthly riches and wonders. He wanted to be the shadow of God, or the arbiter of God's will on earth. And in order to speak for God, he'd need to craft a throne similar to the throne of Solomon, which appears in the Hebrew Bible and is commonly represented in Islamic art. This holy throne is seen as belonging to God himself. Shortly after he became emperor, Shah Jahan commissioned an encrusted gold throne. The throne was to be erected upon a pedestal so that he would be able to sit above his onlookers closer to God. The throne was constructed under the supervision of Bebedal Khan, the superintendent of the goldsmith's department. It was built at a cost of one crore of rupees. By today's estimates, aside from the priceless pieces of the peacock throne, the construction labor alone would have cost $145,000. The peacock throne, or the tucked itaus, was truly a celebration of Shah Jahan's extravagant rule. This was no ordinary seat of power. The throne was a gilded platform, measuring four feet wide and six feet long, ascended by silver steps. Upon its four massive golden legs, which were set with jewels, were four bars that supported the base of the throne. Rising from the bars were 12 columns, which sustained a silk canopy encrusted with precious stones. There were three large cushions placed on the golden throne. The middle cushion was set with the Timur ruby, a precious stone which was gifted to Shah Jahan by his father. Inscribed on the ruby were the names of Shah Jahan's father, Jahangir, and his grandfather, Akbar. Shah Jahan followed suit, inscribing his name as well. The peacock throne was in no shortage of notable gemstones, including the famed 168-carat Babur's Diamond, later known as the Kohinoor Diamond, which translates to Mountain of Light. The throne was backed by representations of two gilded and enameled peacocks, their tails open, revealing diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and other precious stones that made up the vibrant multicolored peacock feathers, as well as other embellishments. Thus, it was named the Peacock Throne. It took a total of seven years to complete the spectacular Peacock Throne. Upon its completion in 1635, the Peacock Throne was housed in the Hall of Private Audiences in the Red Fort of Delhi. Shah Jahan's throne was a stunning reminder of the Mughal Empire's golden age. The extravagance didn't go unnoticed. Embedded on the throne is a 20-couplet poem by Mughal poet laureate Kudsi, praising Jahan in emerald letters. Another poem, written by Haji Muhammad Jan, was set into the canopy of the throne in green enamel lettering. Unfortunately, there are few accounts from anyone who had an opportunity to personally visit the fabled peacock throne. The most notable first-hand account was from a French merchant, Jean-Baptiste Tavignier, who traveled between Persia and India six times between 1630 and 1668. It was on his sixth voyage, which began in 1663 and ended in 1668, that Tavernier was able to personally inspect the peacock throne. Tavernier confirms that the throne was almost the size of a bed, easily six by four feet in dimension. 
He estimated the throne was set with approximately 108 large rubies and 116 emeralds. Tavernier also claims that suspended from the throne were a sword, a mace, a shield and a bow, quiver and arrows. These were also set with precious stones, as were the silver steps ascending the throne. Interestingly, instead of seeing two peacocks represented in the throne's backing, Tavernier claims that there was only one. In his account, the golden peacock's raised tail was set with blue sapphires. In front of the peacock's breast was a large ruby from which hung a pear-shaped yellowish pearl. The peacock was flanked by two flower bouquets, also made from gold and precious stones. In 1658, then 66 years old, Shah Jahan fell ill. His son, Dara, was chosen to rule in his stead. It was rumored that Shah Jahan removed two panels of diamonds from the peacock throne, perhaps afraid his sons would attempt to steal his wealth in the succession war that was sure to follow. And a succession war surely did follow, when Shah Jahan's other sons, Shuja, Murad, and Aurangzeb, learned of Dara's ascent to the throne, they declared independence, crowning themselves kings of their own respective territories. They all gathered their own armies and marched on Agra, the capital, to battle for dominance. Aurangzeb and Murad came to agreement. They would combine forces, and if they were victorious, they would partition the empire and rule together. With their combined forces, Aurangzeb and Murad defeated their brother Shuja in 1659, sending Shuja fleeing to Arakan, present-day Burma, where he was executed by the local rulers. Next, Aurangzeb and Murad's combined forces warred with Dara's army. Although Dara's forces outnumbered Aurangzeb and Murad's army, 60,000 to 40,000, Dara knew little of the art of war and was ultimately defeated. In 1659, Aurangzeb had his brother Dara executed, his head sent to Shah Jahan. Even though Shah Jahan had fully recovered from his illness, Aurangzeb had him declared incompetent to rule and confined to the Red Fort in Agra. Aurangzeb then declared himself the new Mughal emperor in 1659. He broke his promise of ruling together with Murad, instead having his last remaining brother arrested and executed. Jahan is rumored to have returned the panels of diamonds to Aurangzeb a few years after removing them. But even so, Shah Jahan stayed confined until his death in 1666. There may be no connection between the rumor of the removed panels and Aurangzeb's strict orders, but it's possible that Aurangzeb's confinement of his father was a punishment for hoarding pieces of the empire's beloved throne. A treasure like the peacock throne would seem to drive any family quarrel to the extreme. Now that we understand what the peacock throne was and what made it so splendorous, we now need to track the throne up until it was last seen. To do this, we must turn our focus to a man who would become known as the Napoleon of Persia, the second Alexander, a man who strived to be like Genghis Khan. That man is Nadir Shah. Nadir Shah was born in Iran in 1688, well after the peacock throne's completion. As an Iranian ruler and conqueror, ruling from 1736 to 1747, 
He was able to establish a Persian empire that stretched from the Indus River to the Caucasus Mountains, which included all of Iran and parts of Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, and modern-day Pakistan. Nadir Shah was brilliantly victorious as a soldier and a general, but had little success at statesmanship or administration. Toward the end of his reign, Iran's forces became utterly exhausted. Tens of thousands perished in ceaseless military campaigns, and Persia's economy was ruined by the incessant exactions of Nadir Shah's tax collectors. It seemed battle was the only thing he cared about. Once, when Nadir Shah was informed that there was no warfare in the paradise, he remarked, quote, How then can there be any delights there? End quote. It was this thirst for glory that set Nadir Shah's sights on conquering India and claiming the fabled peacock throne as his own. What led Nadir Shah to invade India in 1739? To enter the gates of Delhi? To depose Aurangzeb's great-grandson, Muhammad Shah, the last Mughal emperor to supposedly ever sit on the peacock throne? It begins and ends with something as simple as a broken promise. We'll investigate the last sightings of the Peacock Throne after this quick break. Now back to the story. Where is the Peacock Throne? The royal seat of power of the Mughal Empire, which ruled northern India from 1526 to the mid-19th century. The Peacock Throne has been missing since 1739, when the Mughal Empire was invaded by the Persian Empire, led by Nadir Shah. It wasn't the first time the two empires were in conflict. From 1622 to 1623, the Mughal and Persian empires fought over the fortress city of Kandahar in Afghanistan. The Persians proved victorious. The two empires warred again from 1649 to 1653, once again over the city of Kandahar. The Persians won again. By 1736, Nadir Shah, a brilliant soldier and general, was now the ruler of the Persian Empire. He was leading his Persian forces in an intense war campaign against Afghan forces. Once again, the conflict was being waged over Kandahar. During this time, the Mughal Empire was being led by Muhammad Shah, great-great-grandson of former Emperor Shah Jahan, who built the glorious peacock throne. Over the past three decades, the Mughal Empire had been considerably weakened. The Mughal military had been decimated by routine wars of succession between generations of the royal family. Parts of the Mughal Empire had been captured by invading forces of the Maratha Empire, a neighboring Indian empire. Also, Mughal nobles were able to assert independence, founding smaller states within the empire. The new Mughal emperor, Muhammad Shah, was unable to stop the slow disintegration of his empire. In 1738, Nadir Shah sent two ambassadors to Delhi to request that Muhammad Shah prevent any Afghans from taking refuge in Mughal territories. This seems like a strange request to an empire that was not one of Nadir Shah's allies. It's possible Nadir Shah was trying to start an alliance between the two empires. It's also possible that he was setting Muhammad Shah up, looking for an excuse to start a war with the wealthy but weakened Mughal Empire. 
Regardless of Nadir Shah's intentions, Muhammad Shah agreed to the request to not grant Afghans refuge in any Mughal territories, but he didn't keep his promise. When Nadir Shah learned of Muhammad Shah's actions, he decided to send a third ambassador, Muhammad Khan. But much to Nadir Shah's chagrin, he never received a reply, nor did Khan ever return. At Delhi, Muhammad Shah and his royal ministers kept Khan from returning, mulling their options while waiting on the outcome of Nadir Shah's siege against the Afghans at Kandahar. Their response to Nadir Shah depended largely on whether his siege succeeded or failed. Nadir Shah, an expert in war and conquest, did not fail. He eventually conquered the Afghans at Kandahar in a decisive victory. Annoyed by Muhammad Shah's lack of reply and likely yearning for his next conquest, Nadir Shah marched towards the Mughal cities of Ghazni and Kabul, slaughtering any Afghans he saw that had been given refuge in the Mughal territories. By 1739, Nadir Shah had captured the Mughal cities of Ghazni and Kabul, facing virtually no resistance due to the Mughal Empire's weakened state. He experienced the same lack of opposition as he crossed the Indus River at Atak, eventually occupying the Mughal city of Lahore. Back at Delhi, there were hurried preparations being made to defend the great city, but Muhammad Shah and his faction-ridden noble ministers could not agree on a strategy. Ultimately, in 1739, Muhammad Shah and his Mughal forces met Nadir Shah's host on the battlefield at Karnal. Nadir Shah ended the day victorious, defeating the Mughals in what is now known as the Battle of Karnal. Nadir Shah took Muhammad Shah prisoner after the battle. It is rumored that the Mughal emperor was treated with the utmost respect, civility, and equality while being held captive. Nadir Shah and his Persian forces marched south to Delhi, his royal prisoner in tow. Behind closed doors in the Red Fort at Delhi, Nadir Shah promised to reinstate Muhammad Shah as the Mughal emperor. And in exchange for his reinstatement as the Mughal emperor, Muhammad Shah bestowed upon Nadir Shah many of the priceless treasures held inside the palace, including the peacock throne. There's an interesting rumor regarding one of the prized pieces of the peacock throne, the 186-carat Babur's Diamond. The rumor goes that sometime during these closed-door negotiations, Nadir Shah was tipped off that Muhammad Shah was being deceptive. He believed that Muhammad Shah was hiding Babur's diamond in his turban. To weed out any deceit, Nadir Shah invited Muhammad Shah to a customary turban exchange ceremony. After the exchange, Nadir Shah searched Muhammad Shah's turban, finding something concealed in the layers none other than Babur's diamond. Nadir Shah couldn't believe his eyes. He exclaimed, Kohinoor, which translates to Mountain of Light. It's here, according to the rumor, that Babur's diamond received its new namesake, the Kohinoor diamond. This effort to deceive Nadir Shah is reminiscent of Shah Jahan's rumored withholding of two diamond panels from his son, Aurangzeb. The similarities in these two actions shows how possessive the Mughal royal family was of its fabled peacock throne. As Nadir Shah and Muhammad Shah exchanged titles and treasures inside the Red Fort, 
outside, a rumor was causing discord between the citizens of Delhi and the Persian forces. The rumor was that Nadir Shah was dead. This caused a riot among loyal resistance warriors of Delhi who believed the Persian forces weakened without their leader. They attacked the Persian forces, killing thousands. Upon hearing about the rumor and the riot, Nadir Shah ordered a massacre of the city. Nearly 100,000 citizens of Delhi were slaughtered, and parts of the city were set on fire. Nadir Shah and his Persian forces were camped at Delhi in 1739 for a total of 59 days. Upon his departure, Nadir Shah officially reinstated Muhammad Shah as Mughal emperor, personally placing the crown on his head. Despite the Mughal rioting and the killing of thousands of Persians, Nadir Shah fulfilled his promise to Muhammad Shah. Perhaps because Nadir Shah was satisfied. He'd gotten everything he wanted, a victorious campaign, unimaginable amounts of treasure, and a throne fit for a god. Muhammad Shah regained his crown, but he was the last Mughal emperor to ever sit upon the original peacock throne. In 1739, Nadir Shah and his Persian forces left Delhi and marched back to Persia with a plunder of Mughal treasure, including the peacock throne. A few years later, Scottish travel writer James Bailey Fraser estimated that Nadir Shah's haul of Mughal treasure amounted to 700 million rupees, which equates to over $10 million today. And he certainly wanted his loot to be on full display. According to Abdul Karim, who accompanied Nadir Shah on his journey back to Persia, quote, the outside of Nadir Shah's tent was covered with fine scarlet broadcloth upon which were representations of all the birds and beasts in the creation, with trees and flowers, the whole made of pearls, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, amethysts, and other precious stones. On both sides of the peacock throne was a screen, upon which were the figures of two angels in precious stones." End quote. Before Nadir Shah returned to Persia, it's rumored that he had a facsimile of the peacock throne constructed to divert hopeful thieves from pilfering the real throne. Here's where the original peacock throne's location and authenticity comes into question. There's no way to ensure the throne Karim saw was the original instead of the recreation. But it seems likely that a man like Nadir Shah would have had his greatest war prize on display for all to see. Assuming Karim saw the real throne as part of the tent display in 1739, he may have been the last recorded eyewitness to see the original peacock throne, because soon after Nadir Shah returned to Persia, the precious throne vanished. After this break, we'll continue our search for the peacock throne. And now, back to the story. The famed peacock throne commissioned by Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan was taken from Delhi in 1739 by Persian conqueror Nadir Shah. It was last seen on the march back from Delhi as part of Nadir Shah's elaborate tent display of his newly acquired treasures. Nadir Shah is rumored to have carried both the original peacock throne and a facsimile or recreation back with him to his palace in Persia. And if our first theory is to be believed, that's where it stayed for the better part of the next decade. 
This theory posits that the peacock throne was taken from the Persians as a war prize during Nadir Shah's failed campaign against the Afghans and Kurds in 1747. Ever the showman, Nadir Shah must have brought the peacock throne with him to the military camp as a show of force. But after the Persians lost, the throne was dismantled and distributed amongst the Afghan and Kurd soldiers who, not knowing the value of the precious stones, supposedly sold their pieces for pennies on the dollar. Scottish travel writer James Bailey Fraser wrote that, according to, quote, an old cord, speaking to me in 1822, money and jewels were unknown among us until the days of Nadir, when that king was murdered and his camp plundered, the peacock throne fell into our hands, end quote. The old Kurd must have been referring to Nadir Shah's 1747 campaign to quell a Kurdish uprising in Khorasan. Toward the end of his 11-year rule, Nadir Shah became increasingly cruel to his own people, extorting more and more taxes to pay for his military campaigns. He ruthlessly crushed any revolts resulting from these tax exactions, even building towers of his victims' skulls. It was this increasing cruelty that led to 15 Persian conspirators meeting outside Nadir Shah's tent during the Khorasan campaign in 1747. According to one of Nadir Shah's concubines, the conspirators, quote, entered the royal tent, pushing and smashing their way through any obstacles. The noise they made on entering woke Nadir Shah up. Who goes there? He shouted out in a roar. Where's my sword? The assassins were struck with fear by these words, end quote. The assassins began to flee, but, quote, ran straight into the two chiefs of the murder conspiracy, who allayed their fears and made them go into the tent again, end quote. Nadir Shah was able to slay two of his assassins, but he was outnumbered. The great conqueror was finally killed by his own countrymen. With Nadir Shah no longer leading the Persian forces, their military camp fell into chaos, succumbing to looting and rioting from the Kurdish forces. Fraser's old Kurd states that the peacock throne present at the military camp was, quote, torn in pieces and divided on the spot, although our chiefs themselves little knew their value. Many of us threw away the pearls as useless, and our soldiers, ignorant of the value of gold, offered their yellow money in exchange for a lesser quantity of silver and copper, end quote. The question is, was this a giant missed opportunity for the soldiers? Or Nadir Shah's last laugh? Did Nadir Shah bring the original Mughal peacock throne on his campaign against the Kurds, or did he bring its recreation, keeping the original safe at his palace in Persia? Researchers claim it's unlikely that Nadir Shah would have hauled the original peacock throne with him on a war campaign. Remember, the peacock throne was wrought out of over 3,000 pounds of gold and precious stones alone. It would have been a massive undertaking to bring the throne with him. It's more likely that the throne looted at the military camp was a lighter, less valuable replica. But even so, that doesn't mean the original peacock throne was safe. It's certainly possible the Kurds also ransacked Nadir Shah's palace at a later date, where they would have found the original peacock throne. They likely would have dismantled and distributed it like they did with the throne from the military camp, leaving the original peacock throne and its less valuable replica both lost to mankind. 
Our second theory concerns the writings of A.V. Williams Jackson, an American specialist of Indo-European languages. In his 1911 book, Jackson discusses the concerns of Lord George Curzon, a viceroy of India, over the authenticity of a throne found at the Shah's palace in Tehran in the early 19th century. According to Jackson, quote, Lord Curzon believes that the real peacock throne, or one of the two in Adir Shah's possession, disappeared from the scene after the battle in 1747, end quote. But Jackson goes on to posit that the other throne, whether the facsimile or the original, was discovered in a broken-down condition by Muhammad Shah at Nadir Shah's palace after his assassination. Eager to regain his stolen treasure, Muhammad Shah must have extracted the throne by use of brutal torture of Nadir Shah's blind grandson. After reclaiming the peacock throne, whether original or replica, from Nadir Shah's palace, Jackson writes that Muhammad Shah then had the recovered portions fashioned into a new throne of modern shape and style. He goes on to say that this new throne now resides at the Shah's palace in Tehran. It is here, supposedly, that the sole surviving remnants of Shah Jahan's original peacock throne are found. But Lord Curzon insisted that the throne at the Shah's palace contained no pieces of the original peacock throne and was built in the early 19th century, long after Muhammad Shah died in 1748. One of his main points of argument was that the throne in Tehran had seven legs, while the original peacock throne only had four. Could Muhammad Shah have changed the number of legs when he revamped the throne's style before his death? This seems unlikely. Muhammad Shah supposedly reclaimed the pieces of the peacock throne from Nadir Shah's grandson sometime between Nadir Shah's death in 1747 and his own death in 1748. Remember, the original peacock throne took seven years to construct. It's unlikely that Muhammad Shah would have had time to completely redesign the throne's structure before his own death. Jackson, still skeptical, visited the Shah's palace to see the throne for himself. And there he noticed a detail that put the nail in the coffin for his theory, the inscription. Jackson was a language specialist, and he decided the inscriptions on the Tehran throne were not consistent with Mughal inscriptions from Muhammad Shah's time. This confirmed to Jackson that Lord Curzon's suspicions were correct. The throne in Tehran was indeed a 19th-century recreation, unrelated to Muhammad Shah or the original peacock throne. But if the peacock throne wasn't reclaimed by the Mughal Empire, where could it be? It's beginning to seem more and more likely that the original peacock throne really was looted and distributed between Kurdish soldiers in 1747. Unless... The original peacock throne now resides on the ocean floor, somewhere off the coast of South Africa, as our third theory posits. The theory stems from a rumor that suggests the original peacock throne was somehow aboard the 800-ton British ship the Grosvenor, which was traveling from Madras to England when it shipwrecked off the South African coast in 1782. The Grosvenor was owned by the East India Company, on its fourth and final voyage, it's said to have crashed into the African continent in the early hours of a misty morning. To stimulate summer growth, the farmers near the shore were burning their winter grasslands. 
Through the spray and stormy weather, these fires appeared to the crew of the Grosvenor as lights in the air. The captain dismissed the lights as something similar to northern lights, believing them to be only a natural phenomena in the sky. He continued course toward the mysterious lights, only moments later plowing into the rugged, rocky coastline of Africa. What's interesting is that despite multiple efforts to recover the lost loot in the Grosvenor shipwreck in the 1880s, there was no mention of the Peacock Throne being aboard the Grosvenor until a rumor began circling in 1900. The rumor, of which the origin is still unknown, stated the original Peacock Throne was aboard along with many other priceless treasures. Needless to say, this sparked more heated expeditions in search of the uncovered riches, the first of which began in 1905. But this search ended quickly after a diver drowned and the expedition was abandoned. In 1921, the Grosvenor Bullion Company, or Syndicate, was formed. A member of the company was none other than Sherlock Holmes' creator, author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle would stir the rumors of the Grosvenor shipwreck by mentioning it in a couple of his stories. The Grosvenor Bullion Company proposed that a tunnel be dug under the seabed so as to reach the ship's strong room, which by then was rumored to hold unspeakable amounts of treasure. The company's prospectus list included 720 gold bars as well as 19 boxes of precious stones. It seemed like pure fantasy, but the company was able to raise the money for the expedition. Unfortunately, the company ran out of money before finishing the tunnel. More unsuccessful expeditions in search of the Grosvenor shipwreck continued after the Grosvenor Bullion Company's 1921 attempt. But by 1939, World War II ceased all expeditions. Perhaps a discovery was made in 2000. Jonathan Shaftman, a former University of Cape Town archaeologist, led a group of Hungarian divers as they supposedly found the ill-fated final site of the Grosvenor. Shaftman claimed his team had, quote, found objects which give us almost 100% proof, and we have convinced the National Monuments Council that what we have found is indeed the Grosvenor, end quote. The discovery received further confirmation when the former Natal Park's board chairman, Pat Goss, who was also able to dive at the claimed site, stated, quote, I have been one of the greatest skeptics about this wreck for nearly 50 years, but what I saw has left me quite breathless, end quote. Goss claimed Shaftman and the Hungarian team proved the authenticity of the claims by showing him several gold and silver coins, as well as other unnamed artifacts. But there was no sign nor mention of the peacock throne by the Hungarian team. According to Goss, they did not believe the throne had ever been on the Grosvenor. Was the original peacock throne ever on board the Grosvenor to begin with? Writer Tony Carney reported in 2000 that it was only, quote, a legend, an extravagant falsehood invented to tantalize fortune seekers to invest in the Grosvenor Bullion Syndicate. End quote. Percival R. Kirby, who produced the most authoritative work on the Grosvenor, was skeptical about the presence of the throne. In his 1960 book, he states, quote, Undoubtedly, the Grosvenor was a richly laden vessel, but the visions of scores of chests of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and the like are but idle dreams, end quote. 
Nobody knows where the rumor came from that the Peacock throne was aboard the Grosvenor. According to Kirby and Carney, it certainly seemed more fiction than fact. This seems to sink this theory. Was the original Peacock throne taken in bloody warfare, dismantled and distributed amongst the Afghan and Kurd forces? Could Nadir Shah have left the original throne back at his palace? Could Muhammad Shah have recovered it before the Kurds had the chance to ransack it? Or could the Peacock throne have been aboard the Grosvenor, lost to mankind amidst the ocean currents? It doesn't seem likely that the original Peacock throne was ever aboard the Grosvenor. Rumors didn't start to spread until over 100 years after the ship's untimely end. The throne's absence in the 2000 discovery of the supposed wreck seems to debunk this theory for good. Equally unlikely, Muhammad Shah reclaimed the peacock throne from Persia before the Kurds ransacked Nadir Shah's palace. The rumored remnants of the peacock throne in Tehran appeared to be nothing more than a 19th century recreation. This is the theory we find most likely. As a show of force, a reminder of Nadir Shah's utter devastation of the Mughal Empire, he brought the original peacock throne with him to fend off the uprising in Khorasan. But Nadir Shah never expected to be betrayed by his own men. He was assassinated by a conspiracy of murderers, and the original peacock throne, in all its fabled glory, was dismantled and divided up between the soldiers. The pieces were sold and scattered around the corners of the world and may never be seen again. Some antiquities experts believe the legs of the 1836 Owajar throne, also called the Peacock Throne, may have come from the original. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City also claimed to have possibly discovered a marble leg from the original throne. A few years later, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London claimed the same. However, neither of these claims have a leg to stand on. They remain unconfirmed. There are also claims that a majority of the Peacock Throne's pearls now reside in the Tehran Central Bank as part of the Crown Jewel collections. Speaking of Crown Jewels, we do know where the fabled Kohinoor diamond ended up. After Nadir Shah was assassinated, the diamond fell to different Afghan nobles, eventually being acquired by the British East India Company the same company that owned the Grosvenor. The British government claimed the diamond from the East India Company and transported it to England on the HMS Medea. It now resides in the British crown jewels despite India wishing it to be returned. Perhaps Nadir Shah did get the last laugh. If he can't have the peacock throne, at least no one else ever can. Thanks for tuning in to Gone. If you want to find more episodes or any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many people ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. You can also tell us your theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at Parcast Network or at Parcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Gone is written by Edward G. Excalibur and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. (laughs) ¶¶